Hello, everyone. My name is Misty Denman. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team. It's so my honor to get to be here studying the Psalms with you. I love the Psalms. They've always been what I call my comfort book of the Bible. I go to them often, um, even when I'm studying other things. When I teach or write, I usually have a list of words, churchy sounding words, that I try real hard not to use. Sometimes that's because we don't really know what those word means, words mean right off the top of my head. If I said, quick, tell me the exact definition of propitiation, you might stop in your tracks. Sometimes, because of our backgrounds, whether in a church or not in a church, we have uh, different understandings of those words. And sometimes those words are just off-putting. I have people in my own life who I know and love who I think have heard um, preachers on the side of the road one too many times saying, repent, um, and they will turn right away from a conversation that has some of those really church-sounding words. But I'm going to tell you right now, We're going to use a lot of churchy, deep words today, and we're going to embrace those because I have decided that there is a time and a place for those words. Sometimes there aren't any other words that we'll do, and sometimes we need to remember that those words hold a lot of beauty and truth and hope within them when we understand them correctly. So we're going to talk about repentance and judgment and sin and reconciliation, and we're going to like it. (laughs) We read in our personal study time over this week about the chain of events that were set in motion when King David very deliberately chose to turn his back on the ways of God so that he could give in to his lust, which led to a series of really horrific betrayals. And if there was a way to make it worse, I think we have to remember that in his path of destruction, those people were those who God had charged him with protecting and caring for as their king. But David had really put himself so deep in a pit of desire, greed, abuse of power, murder, manipulation, cover-up that I think he began to not even recognize right from wrong in some places anymore. And as I always have to remind myself when I'm looking at the sin of others in the Bible, lest I think I could never be like that, don't forget, and I don't want to forget either, that David was this same man who um, was really one of the great heroes of the faith for me who said, you know, hey, who are these uncircumcised Philistines against the armies of the living God? He has been a man of great faith um, and great leadership, but this was um, not his shining moment. Finally, after many months of him being just mired in this pit, the prophet Nathan was able to expose David to David, and once his eyes were open to his sin, David finally began to turn his heart back to God. And because God can and does bring about beauty from the ashes of despair, David found restoration for his broken soul, and we have the gift of Psalm 51, as have all believers throughout the ages. But before we turn there, I do want to look on your verse sheet at what the Lord says to David through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 12, 9. These verses are probably pretty familiar with us too. familiar to us by now, but I do think it's important to have them fresh in our minds as we start talking about Psalm 51. So look with me at 2 Samuel 12 on your verse sheet. 
Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken your, the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Okay, with that backdrop, look with me now at David's plea to God in Psalm 51. We'll just read verses 1 and 2 for now. David says, For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, only you, have I sinned and done what is evil. And Oh, I'm sorry, I'm reading three. Let me go back up to one. I thought, that doesn't sound right for this section. <laughs> have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. That sounds right. You know, as I read these words, um, as, as we think about these words, I hope we can sort of imagine what David might have been thinking, feeling that weight of his disappointment in himself, of God's righteous anger. I think maybe the shame of exposure and the dread of God's coming um, judgment before him. Certainly he is aware of the consequences that will be his and his family. David admits his sin before the Lord, and he's crying out for cleansing. David is an amazing writer, and you can feel the emotion in his words throughout this psalm. He really pens these words with a repentant heart, a heart that's ready now to turn back from his way to God. It could be that David has understood all along what he has done and really been grappling with the weight of that. It, it could be that David is just now beginning to um, be aware of and recognize and start thinking about what it is he has done. But we know for sure now that he does understand it and he gives name to it and not just one name but several. He calls it transgression iniquity, sin. And these are all words that acknowledge he knows he has violated a holy God's law and he has violated a holy God's people that he has been charged with loving. Much of David's life has been marked with an intimacy with God, marked both by speaking to God very forthrightly, listening to God and obeying him very carefully. Often when he prays, many of his prayers are recorded in both the Psalms and in um, the Samuels. He addresses God as Yahweh. That was a name God gave himself in the Old Testament. It's a personal name that speaks of God's covenant love for his people. And David uses it a lot. But here, David addresses God as Elohim. And that's a much more distant um, name for God that speaks of his mightiness, of his righteousness, of his power. You can feel David understanding that his sin has created a distance between him and the Lord. David's sin and God's righteous anger has driven a wedge in their relationship, and you will see it here and throughout this psalm. And yet, you still see himself flinging himself at God's mercy. 
David's appeal for cleansing is based on God's steadfast love and compassion for his people, not on anything David has done. Look with me at Isaiah 57 on your verse sheet. I was reminded of these words as I read what David said in verse 1 and 2. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he, that the Lord may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. I know that we are grateful for that. Sorry, y'all, my mouth's a little dry. I took cold medicine this morning and it has totally dried out my mouth. There's so much that David does right here. There's so much to learn that can transform, I think, the way we deal with the sin in our lives. One thing that jumps off the page to me here and will throughout our study today are things that David doesn't do. And one of the things that David doesn't do is make any excuses or justification for his sin. I know I haven't, shouldn't have done this, but I didn't really mean for any of it to happen. One thing led to another. It just snowballed. Hey, God, do you remember how much pressure I'm under being king? You've given me a lot of responsibility. Um, Maybe you're a little like me. I hate it when I realize I've wronged someone. I hate it when I have disappointed someone. I hate it when I have disappointed God. I feel it here. It's most acute here. I feel it down to the pit of my stomach. It fills my head with dread. I have this instinct that screams at me to escape those feelings. They're so strong. And unless I yield um, my sort of thoughts to God's in those moments, I have found I absolutely will run away from that feeling of conviction or that feeling of um, I've done something wrong and I need to deal with it. Got a handful of unhealthy ways that I have done that before. You probably have those as well. Um, I have all too often made excuses for my sin. I've been very convicted by how David doesn't do that here. Um, You may be like me and have um, snapped at somebody at the end of a long week and thought to yourself, yeah, that wasn't right, but... I'm tired, it was the end of a long week, they might not even remember it, they were unkind to me, Um, this and that happened, or, um, you know, she was ugly to me first, and she pushes all my buttons, and she does it on purpose, or, um, hey, I thought about often uh, about uh, Adam in the Garden of Eden, this is sort of a joke between my husband and I, you remember what Adam said when um, God confronts him? Um, about doing the, the one and only thing that God not asked him not to do. And Adam said, hey, the woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. I mean, this looks like it was all on her and you, not really me. I mean, this is sort of an age-old way of dealing, not sort of, it is the original way we deal with our sin. Adam had that inclination and acted on it. We do too. I love that David does not do that here. He doesn't hide. He doesn't justify. He doesn't minimize his sin. His only hope is in restoration. Uh, his restoration is in who God is. He says, have mercy on me. And that's a prayer. It's a plea that's based, as I said, completely on God's character, on his love, on his loyal, unfailing, compassionate, covenant love for his people. It's not dependent on David. It's not dependent on us, but only on who the Lord is. David can't and we can't do one thing 
to earn back favor once we have sinned against a holy God. But we can do this. Humbly confess your sin before God and ask him for forgiveness and restoration. Okay, I'm going to pick back our reading back up in verses 3 through 6, some of which you've already heard. We'll listen to it again. (laughs) For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, only you, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. You can feel David's anguish. Nathan's confrontation of David happened months after um, this original sin started. It appears to me that perhaps David had been in denial before that, refusing to think about what he had done. Somebody in the leaders uh, leaders meeting this morning mentioned that perhaps David's sin had weighed very heavily on him, but he had chosen not to deal with it. I thought that was an interesting way of looking at it that hadn't occurred to me before. Whatever it was that had been going on in David's heart during these months, once his eyes were opened, he chose to keep them open. And he says, I know what I have done, and it is always on my mind now. Then he said something that might have taken you aback, because it certainly did me at first. He says, against you and only you have I sinned. And I thought, wait, What does that mean? Why does he say that when clearly there's a pile of victims behind him here? David is not at all saying that he didn't hurt those people. He is not saying that he didn't sin against them. His point is this. All sin is an offense first against God and then against others. So rather than minimizing what he's done and saying it's only an offense against God, what he's saying is that all of our sin is first, um, is first an offense to God and then to others. So it gives it extra weight. He's not saying that Bathsheba and Uriah don't matter. Just that when you put the full um, measure of a holy God against our sinful ways, it matters. This verse keeps making me catch my breath. I do have a practice of going before the Lord very regularly and confessing my sin. But something I have learned here that's really transformed the way I confess sin and transformed the way I think about my sin, and I'm I'm grateful for it, but it's also been a lot, is that I realized I have very often sort of categorized my sin. And I had thought of sin against God as um, sort of that sin when perhaps the Lord has prompted me to do something in my spirit and I have ignored that or prompted me not to do something and I've done it anyway. And I have often thought of, or I've always thought of that as a sin against God. But when I said something ugly to somebody else, I've really confessed that as a sin against that person. I really haven't thought of that as a sin against God first. Doing that now is really helping me to take my sin far more seriously, to think more carefully about it, to think about how much God loves and cares for that person who I've hurt, to think about the holiness of, of God himself, to think about why he has given us um, um, the, the specifics in his word that do tell us that that's not okay. Um, 
I am taking my sin more seriously as I should, and I hope that we all will do that as a result of this study. Um, What about verse 5? What does David mean when he says he was conceived in sin? He does not mean the act of his conception was sinful. What he does mean is this. David understands and laments the truth that he was born with a sin nature. When that first man, Adam, sinned, disobeyed God, sin entered the world. And from that time on, each person has been born with that natural inclination to rebel against God. We call that original sin. There's an often quoted verse, it's not on your verse sheet, in Romans 3.23 that says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And David isn't letting himself off the hook here by saying, well, I have this sinful nature, we're all like that. He knows he's personally responsible for what he's done. And in thinking about it, he's simply connecting his behavior to that heart that's prone to wander. I believe he's just properly grieved by that wandering heart. I think he's just thinking about sin on a really big scale and connecting himself to it. And perhaps even thinking about how um, the Lord has much sin he has to deal with, not just with David, but with everyone. In verse 6, you see David sort of turn his thoughts While he will always be prone to wander, the Lord is altogether good and holy and will always be. David is worshiping God in these verses, and he invites us into worship too. Our God delights in truth and wisdom because he is the creator, the author of truth and wisdom. And he speaks about that inward being, that secret heart. That's referring to our inner lives, that most hidden place within us that's really known only to ourselves and the Lord. And when we yield to him instead of going our own way, when we open ourselves up and our hearts to his word, to his conviction, to his Holy Spirit, in those deepest places of us, it transforms who we are and those, um, those places that he hides his word deep in our heart, it's ours to treasure. It's life-giving. In contrast to the utter foolishness of our ways that always lead us to go astray, God's ways are wisdom and truth and life for our souls. I think as we can already see, and as we'll see throughout, infused in this psalm is the knowledge that our sin grieves the heart of God But also here is the knowledge that our acceptance of, our love of, the gift of his truth and wisdom delights the heart of God. And we're not helpless when we face temptation to, to, uh, you know, we all face the temptation to turn from God's ways, but we're not helpless. No matter how um, great that temptation is or is in our lives, look with me at Psalm 119 on your verse sheet. Here's the antidote to that temptation. How can a young man or a middle-aged woman or an older woman or a younger woman or any of us keep our way pure by guarding it according to your word? With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up in your, let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Turn from sin by pursuing God's truth and wisdom. And we do that here.
All right, let's continue on in verse 7. David says, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold in me a willing spirit. Some of these verses are so familiar in song, it's hard to um, read them instead of sing them, but I am for sure going to spare you of that. David's mind turns back again to his need for restoration. And now we're going to talk about that word repent. I think we have to in light of these verses. Okay, fact about me. I love a dictionary. I've always loved a dictionary. I pretty much now exclusively use an online dictionary. Love how easy it is. But in my elementary school, every single classroom had a row of shelves um, every year of school dictionaries. And, you know, they'd get uh, more complicated and denser as the years went on. And there was sort of always this rule that if you were doing work, um, you know, the teacher wasn't talking, you were just doing work around your desk, that you were allowed to get up out of your desk if you went to the dictionary to look up a word. Well, I liked learning new words, and I liked getting out of my desk, so I pretty often went and used one of those school dictionaries, and I'd look up a word, and while you were up there, you might as well look up another word, look up six more words, because I'm looking at the dictionary, what hard is there in that, so I um, developed pretty good vocabulary in elementary school, and got a lot of time out of my desk, and that's began my love for a dictionary. So, As I was struggling with the word repent and how to talk about it and how to explain it both in a simple way that we could understand, but also in a a way that provided enough um, theological depth, I went to a Bible dictionary, which is the only point in bringing up a dictionary in the first place here. So here is what um, the Bible dictionary that I used gave as a definition of the word repent. An event in which an individual attains a divinely provided new understanding of behavior and feels compelled to change that behavior. And I thought we probably did need to bring that down to earth a little bit. So what does it mean to have a repentant heart before the Lord? When I have a repentant heart before the Lord, it means I have changed my mind about my sin. And I do like that this dictionary definition said a divinely provided new understanding because the only way we will change our mind about our sin is by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I have changed my mind about my sin. I have previously turned my back to God, choosing my own evil path. Now I am admitting to him that I have done wrong and I am turning back to the Lord, to submit to his will, to submit to his way. And there is godly sorrow over having ever chosen to have left the God I love. With a repentant heart, David once again cries out to the Lord to make him clean. He talks about hyssop. That was this 
plant with a fuzzy stem and sort of fuzzy leaves in the Old Testament sacrificial system. A priest would dip that fuzzy plant in um, the blood of a slain animal, sprinkle that blood on an altar. It symbolized the cleansing of sin um, by the shedding of blood and sacrificial death. Again, David looks only to the Lord for cleansing, restoration, and forgiveness, not at anything he could do. He does not try to earn that. And you know, the first few times I read verses 8 through 12 where he begins to say, let me hear your joy and gladness. Please repair my broken bones. I kind of thought, all right, I think you're being a little hasty and asking the Lord to ease your suffering. You don't get to feel better yet. You've done a lot of wrong here. God will let you feel better when he's ready. And I hope he's not ready. I'm not ready. Um, good thing I'm not the righteous judge, right? Then I realized um, after some study, David isn't asking to be let off the hook in his suffering. Um, and again, a lot to learn from David in this psalm. He isn't trying to um, justify his sin. Uh, he isn't trying to get out from the pain of his response of, of it or um, uh, out of the responsibility of um, kind of walking through the consequences of what the aftermath will look like. He isn't asking to be spared. This is another thing he doesn't do that really is significant. Nathan has already told him that there will be catastrophic consequences for himself and his family for his sin. He doesn't ask the Lord to um, take those away. When David asks for true joy and gladness, those are things that flow from a right relationship with God. What he needs is his friendship with the Lord back. The distance he feels from the Lord, he's comparing to a bone snapped in two. David's repentant heart drives him to remember his previous friendship and just tight-knit love and um, relationship with the Lord, this is what he's asking for, for the Lord to draw near to him and for he to be able to draw near to the Lord again. But I believe he thinks that when he is right with the Lord, everything can be right, even when um, circumstances are real rough. He is going to be suffering um, for many years, and people around him are going to be suffering because of what he's done. But I believe he understands that there can be a sort of soul-deep kind of contentment when you're right with the Lord, even when a lot of other things are wrong. Once again, David's words have um, driven me to take a closer look at my own heart, because when I sin, how often is the top thing on my mind, um, the grief, my, but that my... Um, the grief that my sin has brought to the Lord. How often is the top thing on my mind that I feel like a bone has been broken because now I have this distance from the Lord uh, because I willfully despised him. It's honest, um, with honest remorse, I tell you that I don't think that's been often enough. I do think the psalm is doing its good work in me, I hope, um, and all of us driving down this truth that God cares very, very much that his people choose to walk in his ways. And when we don't, he cares very, very much that we would develop soft hearts that admit our sin to him and go back to him so that he can restore us. That's a right spirit. That is how we get a clean heart. That is how we have joy in our salvation. I'm going to move on to verse 11. 
For many years, I did not understand verse 11. I didn't actually know it was from Psalm 51, but I knew I did not understand verse 11 because there is a song that at least we used to sing often at church with the line, cast me not away from your presence, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. And I would not sing that line, sort of smugly. I just would stand there quietly during it because I thought that is bad theology. And the reason I thought that is because I had a far greater understanding of the New Testament than I did of the Old Testament. And what I knew as a New Testament believer is that once we had trusted Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, and God has promised to never remove that Holy Spirit from us. So I thought, why would you seem to take the Holy Spirit from me? He's already said he wouldn't. So... What, in order to understand this line, I think we have to um, understand the role of the Holy Spirit a little bit in the Old Testament versus the New Testament. First of all, look at Ephesians 1 with me on your verse sheet. This helps us understand um, the role of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament and why I didn't understand this verse originally. In him, this is in the Lord, in Jesus, in him you also, when you have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And that is the role of the Holy Spirit in the lives of God's people under the new covenant, which began at the cross, and it is an unspeakable gift to us. But in the Old Testament, before Jesus, the role of the Holy Spirit was different. It would only sometimes indwell a believer. God would give it um, to certain people, often for um, a specific task that he had asked them to accomplish. And sometimes he would remove it as well. And King Saul was a good example of this. God had given King Saul, the first king of Israel, who David had known and watched his life very closely, he had given him the Holy Spirit so that he could rule Israel um, as a um, good and protective and holy king. Saul had very foolishly turned his back on the ways of God so many times that God removed his Holy Spirit from Saul and removed Saul from his role um, in Israel's history. David saw that. David knew that. David is asking God not to do the same with him. You can really, I think, see a, um, a humility here in what God uh, of what David is asking of God. David is asking, even begging, that he not be rejected by God because of his sin. Verse 12 is, re is similar to verses 8 and 10. David repeats his request for spiritual refreshment and a restored friendship with God. In the days of his great sin, perhaps he had forgotten how much it mattered. He had his eyes elsewhere, didn't he? Now he remembers Perhaps he's thinking about how very much he's going to need that friendship with God and that close presence as he faces the coming harsh realities of the unraveling of his family that Nathan has told him about. Look with me at Psalm 16 on your verse sheet. You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If these verses are true, and they are, then a huge piece of fighting our own sin, of David fighting his sin, is purposefully enjoying and reveling in the goodness of God, which far outweighs that temporary pleasure that he had found and that we found outside of, that we find outside of God's will. 
When we pursue him, we will find him, and he is going to bring more joy and satisfaction and contentment than whatever temporary, lesser, false kind of pleasure we thought we were looking for. Turn from sin by pursuing the joy found in the presence of the Lord. I'd love for you to follow along as I read our last five verses in Psalm 51, beginning in verse 14. Actually, I'll begin in verse 13. Then I will treat, then, and he means after I have been restored, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken, and con- a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. That's a little confusing, and we are going to talk about that. I think David was such a gifted writer. I mentioned it before, but it just is always on the front of my mind. He so beautifully expresses hope in these verses that as the Lord restores him, he can once again be the spiritual leader for his people that God had tasked him with, that he knows he was intended to be. Once he is restored, he can once again inspire his people teach his people, lead his people, be a part of offering those right sacrifices with a properly remorseful spirit in the sight of all of Israel. It will help them. His example will help them be that faithful nation set apart for God's glory, blessed by God as they were meant to be. As their king, David is once again deeply concerned for the well-being of his people, and this is where he's now turning his thoughts. He finally has that renewed sense of duty. Do you know why or have you thought about why David was walking around on that rooftop the night he saw Bathsheba? It was because he wasn't doing his job. He was already not doing his job as king. The very first verse in 2 Samuel, um, I think it's chapter 12, tells us that he was on that rooftop in the springtime when all the other kings were out at war. And instead, he had sent his whole army out to fight, and he stayed behind. Obviously, it went down here from there real fast. David will use his restored relationship with God to start leading Israel again toward faithfulness, to start doing the job that God had given him to do. He knows his people are just as prone to unfaithfulness and disobedience as he was. I am sure he had a strong sense because of his own life um, being so intertwined with King Saul's that when a leader goes astray, the people often go astray with him. When a leader goes astray, a nation is often left vulnerable because the leader is now spending way too much of his or her time and energy um, cleaning up their own messes in their personal life um, to protect the um, nation as they should. A faithful David will encourage his kinsmen to be faithful, and it works the same way today. I hope all of us had some time this week 
in our own study and around our tables to think about how much our everyday choices of obedience or disobedience to God's word really do influence those around us, whether we like it or not. I think often we wish they didn't, right? That our, our, um, that our choices before the Lord would only affect us and we would deal with it with the Lord, but it's just not the way it works. Knowing that, however, really should be a constant motivation for us to walk in the ways of the Lord. Okay, now let's talk for a minute about these sacrifices that David writes about. Let's boil it down very simply to its essence. Early in Israel's history, God had instituted a very deeply significant series of laws um, specified um, in, very, um, in a very exact way for how Israel was to offer some ceremonial sacrifices. They were ongoing, and they were meant to be an ongoing reminder, and they involved all of the senses that the people were sinful and that God was holy and that he hated sin. And every bit of that sacrificial system pointed directly to the future work of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. And in light of that, here's what's important. David knows that God desires, has always desired, an inwardly repentant heart, not empty outward displays of um, sacrifice. So offering those sacrifices, if you were still in the thick of your sin, if you were still wanting to go your own way and had no plans of changing that and weren't really sorry for what you had done, were not just empty, but an offense to the Lord. King David is long since gone. Times change and cultures change, but God does not change. An inwardly repentant heart still pleases the Lord you know, in the, Old, in the Old Testament, the faith of God's men and women was counted to them as righteousness. They looked ahead with expectation to the coming Messiah. As New Testament believers, we have the great gift of knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, of having a much deeper understanding of what it really means to repent, to be cleansed. At just the right time, God's son lived a sinless life. He laid down his life to become the perfect sin sacrifice for us once and for all. First John, verse nine. First John, one nine, it's not on your verse sheet, but listen. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our cleansing, our restoration, our forgiveness are all possible because of the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Travel back with me for a minute to that terrible conversation between Nathan and David. I picture David um, seated. I think of him as a, with his head, um, maybe in his hands, with just sort of bowed with the gravity of his sin weighing him down. I picture these words spoken between them, these last words on your verse sheet. Now look with me at 2 Samuel 12, 13. We read him at the beginning, but let's finish him now. David said to Nathan, after he had heard everything else, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. After David had um, experienced the cleansing he so longed for, he encouraged those around him to do the same. Like David, we can be women with repentant hearts who reach out and use our own stories of 
salvation, of restoration, of cleansing to help lead others toward the Lord. Like David, may we be women who encourage others to turn from sin, to seek God's forgiveness and restoration. Let's pray. Lord, your goodness to us, your mercy and grace, your sacrifice for us is beyond understanding. I pray, Lord, that we would be women who have deeply grateful hearts, who um, never forget what you have done for us, um, who take great joy and pleasure in our salvation. Um, who are grateful for it, even when everything else is really hard, God. I pray, God, that we would be women of joy because of this. And I pray that we would be women who use our own stories to um, share with others the good news that there is cleansing, that there is restoration, um, that there is a chance to be repentant no matter what it is that we have done, Lord. Um, I thank you for that. I thank you for who you are. I thank you so much for the chance to um, be able to share your word with other women. Would you bless each woman who is hearing this today? And I ask all this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Thank you, Mr.